0: You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch.
1: Today's reading is from Acts chapter two. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they said, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites? Residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Ephradiah and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the with the eleven and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God said, And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible to death for death to keep a hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realms of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with the joy of your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. See what was to come. He spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, And he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from his Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the holy spirit the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off for all who for all whom the lord and god will, our god will call with many words he warned them and he pleaded with them save yourselves from this corrupt generation those who accept this message were baptized and about three thousand were added to their number that day
0: Hi, DPC. Uh, If you've got a Bible, it'd be great if you could open it up to Acts chapter 2, so you can follow along with my talk today. Uh, Or if you don't have a Bible, you could find the Bible passage on the welcome card. Uh, And on the welcome card, there's also an outline uh, of the talk that I'm going to give this afternoon. Uh, So you might find it helpful to follow along with that. Uh, But let's pray before we look at God's Word. Oh, gracious Father, we, we thank you for this time in which we can look at your Word together. And we just ask that uh, you would be present with us by the power of your spirit to open our eyes to see who our Lord Jesus is, uh, that he is indeed the Lord and King. Uh, It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I wonder who or what you would say is Lord of your life. And maybe you think, well, what are you even talking about? You know, I don't have any Lord of my life. But in her book that's called Out of the Salt Shaker, a woman named Becky Pippett says this. She says, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. You see, whatever you're really kind of seeking in life will end up becoming your Lord, the, the personal thing that leads you, that rules you, that controls your life. And now, in one sense, I've got to say that I disagree with Becky Pippitt, because she says that, well, she says we don't control ourselves. But, well, I think we at least try to control ourselves. We try to control our own life. It's like we get out of bed each morning and put on one of those little paper crowns, you know, like out of a Christmas cracker, and we act as if we are the sovereign king or queen of our own lives. And we say to ourselves, oh, well, you know, if only people would see things the way I see them, if only people would do what I say, if only people would live As I live, if only I could control this situation. This is what comes naturally to us. Living as if we are the Lord and King of our own lives. And as we do that, we end up being controlled by other lords, if you like. Like money or sex or power or acceptance. But Because these are the things that that promise life. The life that we long for. But what we see in today's passage, in Acts chapter 2 is that the coming of God's Spirit changes all of that. Because Luke's message in this chapter is that the coming of the Spirit means we should stop living as if we are the Lord and King of our own lives and start living with Jesus as our Lord and King. So I invite you to open up Acts chapter 2. First, let's look at how Luke records the actual coming of God's Spirit in verses 1 to 11. Uh, in verse 1, Luke briefly notes the, uh, exactly when the Spirit came. He says it was on the day of Pentecost. A Pentecost being a, a kind of Jewish religious festival, sometimes known as the Feast of Weeks, uh, because it was celebrated seven weeks or 50 days uh, after the Passover. Well, this was when it was time for the grain harvest to be gathered in. Hence the name Pentecost, right? Because we know from words like Pentagon or Pentathlon, that the prefix pent means five or 50. So back in, in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, we see that 50 days after Israel was freed from their political slavery in Egypt by the blood of the Passover lamb, God came down in power upon Mount Sinai. Maybe you want to read about that in Exodus 19. Likewise, here in Acts chapter 2, we see that 50 days after God's people have been freed from their spiritual slavery to sin by the blood of Jesus, the ultimate Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, 50 days after that event, God comes down in power upon his people. So on the day of Pentecost, these 120 Christians are gathered together in, in one of the rooms off the temple courts. I say that because we see, if you look in verse 46, uh, that that's where they often met. Uh, they're gathered together, waiting on God uh, to give the power from heaven, right? just as Jesus had commanded them to do in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Uh, and in verse 2, where we see that, that power from heaven arrives, it comes in God's spirit, Luke first tells us what the disciples heard when the Spirit came. He says, "Look at verse two. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting." So, when the Spirit came, they heard this sound that there wasn't actually a wind. You know, it wasn't something natural. No, no, it was very clear that something supernatural was going. But whatever it was it did sound like a wind, a powerful and violent wind, perhaps a bit like a hurricane, a tornado, which isn't that surprising, but because if you read through the Bible, the words wind and breath are often used as kind of symbols of God's spirit. To name just one example, in John chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus says, The wind blows wherever it pleases. Uh, excuse me, uh, you hear its sound, uh, but you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. This is what the disciples heard when the Spirit arrived. Like the incredible power of a violent wind. And then in verse 3, where we see what the disciples saw when the Spirit came, again, it was something that seemed like. It seemed to be tongues of fire coming down to rest on each of them. You might remember from the book of Exodus again that the fire is often a symbol of the pure and holy presence of God. Like God appeared to Moses in the fiery burning bush. You Remember that? He guided the Israelites at night by a pillar of fire. He appeared to the Israelites at Mount Sinai in a billowing cloud of fire. But throughout the Bible, God's people have had to be protected from the fire of His presence. Why not here? Right here, instead of the fiery presence of God destroying His people, it comes down to rest upon them. It purifies His people, it cleanses His people by transforming them into a people who are suitable for serving in His mission. So the violent wind here symbolizes the power of God's Spirit. The tongues of fire symbolize the purification of God's Spirit. And in verse 4, where we see just how personal the coming of the Spirit is. Because what these disciples experienced when the Spirit came was actually being filled with the Spirit. You see, the God we worship as Christians isn't some impersonal force in the world. He's a deeply personal God, Father, Son and Spirit, relating to one another in intimate and loving and personal community. So God has always wanted to be with his people personally, to dwell with them, to be near to them, to draw his people into an intimate and loving relationship with him. You can trace that theme through the whole Bible, and here in Acts chapter 2, we really reach one of the climaxes of that theme, Right, with every single believer actually being filled with God's presence. You see, if you're a Christian, the reality is, no matter how you feel, you couldn't be any closer to God if you tried. But by the power of his spirit, God has come to personally make his home in you. The coming of God's spirit, you see, is deeply personal. It's intimate. It's about relationship. Finally, in verses 4 to 11, we we see uh, what these uh, Christians spoke when the spirit came, which tells us about God's purpose in sending the spirit. Uh, If you look at verse 4, you'll see that having been filled with the Spirit, the disciples begin uh, speaking in what Luke describes as other tongues. Uh, He explains what he means by these other tongues from verse 5. Take a look from verse 5. Luke says, Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. So so we've got these uh, Jewish believers who'd been uh, living in Jerusalem, perhaps uh, as permanent residents, even though they'd been born in other parts of the Greco-Roman world, or maybe they'd just been staying in Jerusalem for the period of time since the Passover, or whatever the case, uh, these Jewish people from every nation under heaven, uh, excuse me, uh, which I don't think means that there were kind of Jewish people from Australia or, or New Zealand there. He's saying there were Jewish people there from all the nations that, knew, uh, that Luke knew of, or from all the nations in the Greco-Roman world. Oh, sorry, in verse 6, uh, Luke says that the, when this crowd of God-fearing Jews heard the sound of the Spirit... They came together in bewilderment because each of them heard their own languages being spoken. Notice that right clearly that the other tongues that Luke's speaking about here are not unknown heavenly languages. Right? they're known human languages. Right, they're the languages of the nations. So in verses 7 and 8, these same Jewish people say, aren't all these men who are speaking these words Galileans? How is it that each of us is hearing them in our own native language? Or in verse 11, the end of this section, how is it that we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own languages? These people are bewildered, they're perplexed, they're amazed. Because here this uneducated group of Galilean disciples are suddenly able to declare the wonders of God in their own languages. What's with that? Whether well, The supernatural phenomena of these utter tongues really tells us something about God's purpose in sending his spirit. It tells us that the coming of God's kingdom, the coming of God's spirit are all about bringing together a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multinational community. A people, a new humanity, as it were, who are united by the fact that they worship the same Lord Jesus and are filled with the same Holy Spirit. In that sense, what we see here in Acts 2 uh, is an incredible reversal uh, of the Tower of Babel episode in Genesis chapter 10. At the Tower of Babel, sinful humanity had kind of united together to build a tower into the heavens. It was a proud attempt to ascend into the heavens in their own strength without any reference to God. Right. As a consequence, God came down to the tower, he confused their languages, and he scattered them across the face of the earth. Right, But, but here in the coming of God's spirit, right, God, it's not about sinful humanity, a kind of proudly ascending up to heaven. It's about a humble God humbly descending to earth. And in doing that, what does God do? He, he supernaturally smashes the language barrier. So that the people from all these different nations can understand one another. This tells us that God's purpose in sending his spirit is to gather a new humanity to himself from every nation under heaven, united under Christ, his son. It's an incredible event, isn't it? The coming of God's spirit. How do people respond to it? Well, take a look at Emphasis 12 and 13. You'll see there that it's quite a mixed response. In verse 13, you'll see that the excuse me that there were a minority of people who for some reason mustn't have heard anything in their own language. So they thought that the disciples were just kind of speaking in some sort of drunken gibberish. That just didn't make sense. But the vast majority of people, even though they were a bit confused, they knew that something strange was going. Something different. So they said to one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? That's the question that Peter answers in verses 14 to 36. At first, in verses 14 and 15, Peter explains what the coming of the Spirit doesn't mean. What it doesn't mean is that the disciples are drunk. Well, I mean, during a kind of religious festival like this, Jewish people, like Jesus' disciples, uh, they would have typically fasted until at least mid-morning. Well, they can't be drunk at 9am. Uh, so in verses 16 to 36, Peter explains what the coming of the Spirit does mean. Uh, first, in verses 16 to 21, if you look at that section, uh, he says the coming of the Spirit means that God is doing exactly what he said he would do. Uh, when his king and his kingdom came. Take a look there from verse 16. I'll read verses 16 to 18. Peter says, no, Uh, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Uh, Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Uh, Even on my servants, I will... um (coughs) Uh, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in these days, and they will prophesy. You see, in the Old Testament, God's spirit only came on particular leaders amongst his people, right? prophets, priests, kings, judges. Right? The spirit came on these leaders to equip and empower them in their role. But here in this prophecy that Peter's quoting from Joel chapter 2, God promises that in the last days, right, that is in the period of time that, that begins when God's king arrives, the Messiah, to establish God's kingdom. Right? In these last days, God promises that, that he's going to pour out his spirit on all people. Now, of course, that, that doesn't mean everyone on the planet. Right? It means pouring out his spirit upon all of his believers. Of course, this idea of God pouring out his spirit doesn't mean that the spirit's a kind of impersonal liquid that you can pour out. The spirit is the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. You can't pour him out like a glass of water. The purpose of this image of pouring out is to show just how generous God is With his spirit, he doesn't just give a couple of drops of his spirit, a shower of his spirit. He pours out his spirit upon his people in great generosity. And we see that generosity again in the fact that he pours out his spirit on all people. Not just on those special leaders, but on all his people without distinction. Sons and daughters, male and female, young and old, all will receive the gift of God's spirit. And the particular evidence of them receiving that gift is that they will prophesy. I don't know, dreams and visions are mentioned here, but prophecy is the thing that unites it together. They'll prophesy in the sense that by the power of God's Spirit, they'll come into a new knowledge about God. It will be revealed to them. And then they'll declare that knowledge to those around them. Just like Peter's doing in this chapter. So in verses 19 to 21, Peter continues quoting Joel 2. Uh, and in these verses, God predicts certain things that will happen when his king comes to establish his kingdom. Uh, he says, for example, that, that when his king comes, there'll be wonders in the heavens, like the sun being turned to darkness. Uh, and of course, that's what happened in Jesus' ministry. right? In Luke chapter 23, verse 44, at the moment when Jesus was being crucified on the cross, the sun stopped shining for three hours in the middle of the day, complete darkness. when Jesus came, there were wonders in the heavens, and there were also wonders on the earth, as God predicted in John. right in verse 22, Acts 2, verse 22. If you see there, that throughout Jesus' ministry, the Jewish people saw him perform wonders on the earth, like miracles and signs. And wonders. all this, Peter says, is a sign of the great and glorious day of the Lord. A day in which the Lord has come to save his people, to defeat his enemies, and to establish his eternal kingdom. And in verse 21, Peter says, During this period of time, the last days, the day of the Lord, are the only way someone can be saved and be a part of God's kingdom is by calling on the name of the Lord. Remember that. The coming of God's spirit means God is doing exactly what he said he would do when his king and his kingdom came. So who is this Lord that we have to call on? Well, that's really what Peter explains in verses 22 to 36. Right? He says the coming of the Spirit means that Jesus is God's risen and exalted Lord and King. First, in verses 22 and 23, Peter says Jesus was crucified just as God planned. Uh, I've already mentioned verse 22, right? Peter uh, says there, he kind of confronts his fellow Israelites saying, you guys saw Jesus in action, but By his miraculous signs and wonders, it was like God was flashing Jesus' accreditation pass in front of you, saying Jesus is my King, the Messiah. Uh, But but despite that, verse 23, uh, the Jewish people were intimately involved with killing Jesus what Peter says this man you, uh, this man uh, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge uh, and with the help of wicked men uh, put, uh, you put him to death by nailing him to the cross notice the tension here the Jewish authorities handed Jesus over to be killed. And with the help of wicked men, who I take to be the Roman authorities, Jesus was nailed to the cross. He he was crucified. From this perspective, doesn't it seem like the Jewish and Roman authorities were in control? Why, Jesus was being killed according to their knowledge and plans. That's not what Peter says, is it? Why, Peter says it was God who was in control. Why, Jesus was crucified by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. We'll come back in a bit to, to why this was God's plan, right? But, but for now, Peter says Jesus was crucified just as God's plan, God planned. And then in verses 24 to 32, uh, Peter says Jesus was raised just as God promised and prophesied. Well, you put Jesus to death, Peter says. But look at verse 24. God raised Jesus. From the dead, right, freeing him from the agony of death, uh, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Uh, why was it impossible for death to keep a hold on Jesus? Well, because of who Jesus is. Right, Jesus uh, is the ultimate descendant of David, the Messiah, God's promised King, uh, who in verses twenty-five to twenty-eight, Peter, sorry, uh, sorry, so rather in verses twenty-five to twenty-eight, Peter quotes from a psalm of David, Psalm 16, uh, verses 8 and uh, 8 to 11. Uh, If you scan those verses, you'll see uh, that this is a psalm in which David expresses his utmost confidence in the face of death. His body will not be abandoned to death, he says. In fact, beyond the grave, David says he'll find paths of life and eternal joy in God's presence. But if you look at verse 29, Peter points out that that David can't just have been talking about himself in this passage. Because in the end, David died. We all know that, Peter says. His tomb's just over there. So in verses 30 to 32, Peter explains that in Psalm 16, David was speaking as a prophet. By predicting the future, a prophet who remembered God's promise to him. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, right, the promise that one day one of his descendants, uh, uh, the the Messiah, would indeed be raised from the dead to rule over God's eternal kingdom. That's Jesus, Peter says in verse 32, right? Jesus was raised just as God promised to David and just as God prophesied through David. But more than that. Verses 33 to 36, Peter says, Jesus was exalted, so now he has poured out God's Spirit. In verse 33, Peter says, Exalted to the right hand of God, Jesus has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and he has poured out what you now see and hear. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God, Peter says. Well, we saw that in Acts chapter 1. So now Jesus has received the gift of the Spirit from his Father and he's poured the Spirit out on his people. Because verses 34 and 35, Jesus is not just God's king. He is the Lord of all. all right, Peter quotes here from another Psalm of David, Psalm 110, verse 1, where David, the king of Israel, speaks about the Lord, right Yahweh, speaking to someone who he calls his Lord. But who is this Lord of David's? Well, Peter says it's Jesus, right? The one who has ascended to the right hand of God. So in verse 35, God promises that the one day he's going to put all Jesus' enemies, right? Anyone or anything that opposes him, under his loving and powerful rule. So in verse 36, Peter concludes, he drives home his point. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. The coming of the Spirit means that Jesus is God's risen and exalted Lord and King. So how do we respond to that? Well, that's what Peter covers at the end of the passage, verses 37 to 41. In verse 37, the crowds listening to Jesus ask Peter, what shall we do? Like, what do we do with this? So in verse 38, Peter says, well, you you should repent and be baptised. Which I've summarised as saying, stop living as if you are the Lord and King of your own life and start living with Jesus as your Lord and King. And I think that involves, that process of stopping living as your own king and starting living uh, with Jesus as king, that process involves at least four things from this passage. First, in verse 39, uh, it involves responding to God's call by calling on Jesus to save you. But notice in verse 39, Peter talks about everyone who the Lord our God will call. Peter knows, what he understands, that uh, as people listen to his preaching of the gospel in the power of the Spirit, God will call people to himself. Uh, And as they're called, uh, he he knows, uh, as we saw in verse 21, uh, that they have to call on Jesus to save them. Jesus, God's Lord and Christ. I wonder if you've responded to God's call by calling on Jesus to save you. If not, you really should do that today. And Jesus can save you because his death on the cross that Peter spoke about in verse 23 makes it possible for you to receive forgiveness from God that Peter speaks about in verse 38. You see, why was it God's plan for Jesus, his son, to be crucified? Well, because Jesus' death on the cross pays the cost of forgiveness. And we all know that that real forgiveness for serious sin uh, is very costly. You've got to absorb into yourself your anger, your frustration, your judgment, your bitterness. So you've got to absorb all that into yourself uh, rather than continuing to hold that against the person who sinned against you. That's what God does at the cross. In Jesus, God absorbs into himself his anger, his judgment, his bitterness against us in our sin. And having paid that cost himself, uh, he can freely offer forgiveness to us. I wonder if you have received forgiveness from God for your sins by trusting in Jesus' death on the cross. That's part of what it means to live with Jesus as your Lord and King. In verse 38, Peter says that having been forgiven by God, uh, uh, by calling on Jesus to save you, uh, like the disciples in this chapter, you can receive the gift of God's Spirit. This is part of the blessing of living with Jesus as your Lord and King of your life. Right? Jesus baptizes you in his spirit as an inward spiritual sign that you belong to him and his people. But in verses 40 and 41, well, we see that there's also an outward physical sign of belonging to Jesus and his people. Right? It's a public sign. It's being baptized. Look in verse 40. Right, Peter pleads with the, the people who, who he's speaking to to save themselves from the crowds around them. Right, and not because the, the people around them are not because they're somehow better than the people around them,'re right? just because the people around them, for the most part, are living as if they are Lord and king of their own lives, rather than with Jesus as their Lord and king. They've got to be different. Instead, Peter urges them, in verse 41, to accept his message and be baptized which I think must be baptised in water, right? Because it seems to be distinct from receiving the Spirit in verse 38. Because being baptised in water is the outward physical sign of belonging to Jesus and his people, of saying Jesus is my Lord and King. The coming of the Spirit means we should stop living as if we are Lord and King of our own lives and start living with Jesus as our Lord and King. Because the reality is, all of us are going to have some sort of Lord. All of us are going to have someone or something that controls us. And Jesus is the best Lord. Jesus is the Lord who, by the coming of his Spirit, offers us power despite our weakness. A purity despite our uncleanness. A personal intimacy with him despite our loneliness. And a great purpose to live for in life, despite all our wandering and aimlessness. As we are able to participate in his mission of gathering a people to himself from every nation under heaven. A people who are united in worshipping him as both their Lord and King. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that that we would see clearly by the power of your spirit uh, that Jesus is indeed uh, your Lord and King and that we should stop living as if we are Lord and King of our own lives and start living with him as our Lord and King. Uh, It's in his name that we pray. Amen.